Indeed, it's only words. And what I have for you now? Well, I have some words. It's history time! Ba ba ba! Radio Rollit! Hello there, history fans. Well, I have an exciting first ever podcast for you today. Some revision for your Paper 2, Year 11 exam coming up, which is happening this Thursday I do believe but you might want to check your exam timetable I'd hate to be held accountable if that's not the case so um, what we're going to do is we're going to have a little run through paper two and I'll talk you through some of the main sort of aspects points to look out for that sort of thing and all you need to do is sit back relax and enjoy my lovely soothing historical tone so um, let's start off with a few general pointers um, about the papers you may remember that um, paper 2 is based on three main topics, the liberal reforms, the suffragettes, and the suffragists, obviously, this is the women's suffrage movement, and uh, the third one is the home front. So any one of those could come up for your exam, you won't know, obviously, until the day, and, um, well, it's sort of, it's a lucky dip, so there's some excitement for you. Uh, of course, it won't be very exciting if you get to your exam and you find out that you don't know anything about those uh, topics. Now, in the last few years, we've had every single one of those topics coming out. In fact, uh, in 2003, we had a little bit of um, suffragettes, I think it was, and then 2004, we had the home front. 2005, we had the liberal reforms, and then we were back for a little bit more home front last year in 2006. So it could be absolutely anything uh, for 2007, I suppose. I'd probably be tempted to say that if we've already had the home front twice, it might be ever so slightly less likely than the others. But th then again, examiners are evil people, and um, they might do something just to try and trick you. So uh, I guess the, the the message from me, thought for the day, Jerry Springer's final thought, the thought for the day is, uh, revise everything, clearly. Was I ever going to say anything else? Um, <clears throat> So what we're going to do, we're going to take a little run through uh, the liberal reforms to start with and you can divide this topic really into three main areas. You've got the reasons why the liberals uh, introduced the welfare reforms, you know, why on earth did they bother, it was a lot of effort to go to, so what were their reasons. Um, secondly then, what did the reforms themselves do? Uh, and then you've got the whole sort of final aspect there which is, well, what what was the reaction to the reforms, um, how effective were they, you know, all the bloody bloody blah, blah sort of historical reasoning stuff, you know, balancing scales, blah blah blah, all that stuff. Okay, so we're going to go back and, oh, I've just seen a picture of Winston Churchill, and his head's shiny, right. We're going to go back and we're going to have a look at the reasons why the Liberals introduced these welfare reforms, and we're going to start with um, 
Well, we'll start talking about the first one. I mean, um, self-help versus welfare state. This is I'm, I'm using the uh, the Walsh book as a bit of a guide here. I am cheating. I don't know everything, just straight off the top of my head. Um, <clears throat> but the first one is this whole issue that um, a lot of years people have just assumed that if you're poor, it's your own fault, and um, that you were sort of lazy or, or whatever. Um, and other people started to sort of say, "Well, no, that wasn't that wasn't really fair. It's not necessarily your own fault if if you're poor, um, and the government perhaps should do something to help you out." And this idea was a new one. It sounds a bit weird, but it's a new one that was starting to emerge um, at this time, start of the 20th century. And social reformers, in particular, people like Seabom Rauncher, it's a great name, Seabom. Seabom. That's like the Dam Busters, isn't it? Um, yeah, Seabom Rowntree, He. Um, well, aside from making wonderful sweets, he also was very into his research, and uh, he published his book in 1901 called Poverty, A Study of Town Life, and I'm sure you can guess what that was about. Uh, he researched it for two years in the city of York, which is a fabulous place, I should know, I, I lived there for a bit, and um, basically what he found out was, lo and behold, shocking, some people were poor, and it wasn't their fault. Um, poverty was caused by factors you couldn't really control, such as old age, you know, poor education, not being able to um, raise, you know, support kids, at, you know, maybe not being able to work because you were ill or you'd had an accident or something. Um, so that's what he found out. He, he found out, in fact, that 27% statistics, stat all time, stat all time, 27% of the population lived below the poverty line. Um, so there we are. What a thrilling chap he must have been to have at a party. Lots of statistics. Um, so, Roundtree, well, he was quite an important person in the government, and in fact, they, he sort of had helped to advise them, and he, he was quite good friends with uh, David Lloyd George, the ladies' man himself. So, that was uh, <clears throat> the, the whole sort of role of social reformers, people like Roundtree. Um, another big reason why they did it is because they wanted to stop people voting for the Labour Party. Remember, the 19, in 1900, the Labour Party was set up as the Labour Representation Committee, and... Um, yeah, the, the Liberals clearly wanted to make sure that they didn't get many votes. In fact, they weren't really worried about the, the Labour Party winning the election. They were still tiny, but they were worried that they might steal votes from the Liberals that would enable the Conservatives to win. So a big thing for the Liberals was trying to make sure that the the working class didn't go to vote for, for the Labour Party. So by passing these Liberal reforms, they would help to make sure that the, the working class didn't need to get turn to the Socialist Labour Party. They could um, get everything they wanted out of the Liberals and would therefore stay loyal to the Liberals and help them to be re-elected. Um, okay, so you've also got Baldy Slaphead Churchill here, who um, is, well, looking glum as ever, but um, he and and David Lloyd George were two very important people at the time, big think, you know, radical thinkers. I mean, Lloyd George himself had quite a, a, a working class, class sort of um, Welsh background. Winston Churchill was from very different roots, but um, equally interested in poverty, and at this time they, the, the two people were trying to carve a name out for themselves, and so... Um, the, the whole idea of bringing in these reforms they they knew could possibly set the um set them up for the rest of their career so they um they were quite into it you should hopefully remember between 1899 and 1902 britain was also involved in a bit of a scuffle uh, the burr war and uh, it didn't go terribly well um partly because the recruits weren't very fit they, they weren't fed very well malnourished all that sort of business and um in some poor areas of britain 69% of them were actually found to be unfit um, some of them hadn't actually grown properly, so um, yeah, they weren't particularly useful as soldiers. So the army had to actually lower its minimum height for a soldier. That's um, again pretty 
big indicator that not everything was well. So the Liberals wanted to increase people's health, particularly that of children, so the next generation would be fit and strong, and then they could send them to war, and they could all have machine gun bullets fired at them, and they could all die. Really worth the investment, clearly. Um, okay, industrial decline. That was a big one. That was a biggie. Um, Germany and America, you might remember, are really um, sort of breaking through at this time, and starting to outstrip Britain in terms of their industrial production and so again the Liberals wanted to make sure that didn't happen they wanted to keep themselves at the sort of the pinnacle of the world in terms of enterprise and, and business and industry and that's where they'd been used to being because the British Empire and all that business and they're just starting to wake up and smell the coffee here really that it was um, it was in decline so um, again if they can make the workforce more productive less sick days that sort of thing they can obviously make sure that the workforce is um, is more productive and therefore they make more money so and, and can outsell America and, and Germany and places like that. Yes. Um, okay, and that's pretty much it really in terms of the main causes. you just got to try and remember what it would be like for someone in those days if they didn't have a job, maybe they were ill or um, they couldn't find work. If you can't find work or you can't work then you're not going to get money. If you're not going to get any money then of course you can't afford to pay for the, your rent and your rent was a third of your wages in those days. It's an awful lot of money. And you probably even find the house had damp anyway. So even if um, you can afford your housing, you probably find it's pretty poor quality. Um, and then of course you've got your grandparents and the and the adults and the children all living in the same house, and that's pretty cosy to say the least. Um, and then of course they can't work either, so you're not getting them bringing money into the house. So it's it's, it's pretty pretty shocking. And as for the old people, I mean, they can basically try and claim sort of you know assistance which is basically handouts of like you know old clothes and stuff like that from different organizations or they can go to the workhouse but there's there's nothing really that's uh, that's terribly nice there's no pensions or anything like that obviously before the liberal reforms so it's a pretty rough time okay history whizzes right what we're going to do now we're going to move on to look at the liberal reforms themselves and what they actually did um i guess we can probably break these down into um three areas again we've got liberal reforms to do with children childers and then we've got the elderly old peeps and then we have the unemployed and remember um, that people weren't just unemployed because they were lazy this was the idea that was starting to come out on the back of Roundtree's work some people needed genuine help finding work um, and so if we start with children then 1906 the Liberals passed the Education Act and that was the um, the act that made them have to give free school meals to children, or it allowed them to give free school meals to children. It didn't force them, but it allowed them to. Then in 1907, they extended um, legislation, and in fact, um, they they had to provide school medical checks. Okay, they didn't have to actually do anything about it, which was really good of them. They could just tell you you were about to die and not really treat you, but but um, that's them. Um, that's life. But then, as of 1912, they did actually have to do something about it. Well, they didn't have to actually. They 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 were encouraged to, but again, they wouldn't you know wouldn't hold up in a in a court or anything like that. They wouldn't be forced to do anything about it. So if they decided that you were ill, um, they were supposed to help you out. But again, they didn't really have to. It was like, please help me out, please help me out, that sort of thing. Okay. Um, 1908 they passed the Children and Young Persons Act and that was important because it made children protected persons in the law so it meant that um, parents could be prosecuted for mistreating their children up until this point it was sort of well it's your kid do with it what you want um, and, and now they're starting to say well actually there ought to be limits um, 
and also it meant that parents couldn't insure their children and uh, you know do devious things like bump them off and then claim the money and also um, they couldn't uh, be tried an adult um, they, they couldn't go to adult prisons they they go to stalls instead and there are also limitations on the number of hours they could work all that sort of business so um, yeah again pretty pretty important stuff in helping to protect kids okay if we look at the elderly the big the big thing here is um, the obviously the, the pensions so uh, we'll start with that 1909 the uh, old age pensions well it, it, in fact, it's 1908-1909. He starts in 1908, and it really kicks in in 1909, so you can get away with any of those years. Um, old peeps over 70 would qualify for five shillings per week, and married couples would receive seven shillings six. Um, you had to have an income of over £31 a year for you to not to qualify. Um, and you had to have been a British citizen who had been living in Britain for 20 years. Okay, so there's a few sort of um, rules and, and sort of hurdles you had to go over, but at the same time you didn't have to contribute to it. So you could be, you know, in absolute poverty your whole life and um, not be able to afford to contribute to it. And then you get this at the end of your life, which is sort of nice. Um, but at the same thing, money does not grow on trees, children, and you know this. And um, I've been out and I've looked and I've found none. So how does it all get paid for? Well. I suppose the issue here is obviously general taxation. It ha all has to come out of general taxation, so shouldn't be surprised to know that pretty um, pretty soon after this, 1909, the People's Budget, Lloyd George hiked the taxes right up. Uh, it was like Simon Cowell's trousers, and um, he uh, got big sort of criticism from some people because he, you know, he's taxing the rich and he was spending it on the poor, and yeah, it's a little bit Robin Hood that, isn't it? Um, but less foliage. And he um, he also got praised by a lot of people as well because he was seen as this big social reformer who was starting to redress the imbalances in society. So you know, pros and cons, I guess. Pros and cons. Um, okay, right. Let's move on and let's talk about the unemployed. Uh, one of the easy things, I suppose, the government could do if you've got people who are out of work is try and match them to jobs, and that's where this whole labour exchanges comes in. A bit like. Uh, job centres in a sense. Um, you find uh, you're out of work and you pop along to this little um, shop sort of thing and uh, they try and fit you up with a job that they've got advertised. So yeah, similar. Not not exactly the same, but for us it works just for the moment. Just remember to call them labour exchanges. Don't call them job centres, please. Um, uh, then obviously that's that was the easy thing as I said. I suppose the the most long-standing thing that the Liberals brought in, probably the most famous thing, you know, like governments are famous for stuff, is the uh, national insurance. You got part one, and well, they've done a part one, so they had to call the next bit part two, didn't they? So you got part one and part two. You can't have like part one and part B. You'd have part A and part B. So part one and part B. Um, both contributory, you have to pay money into a pot. This is not like pensions. Pensions, obviously, you don't need to contribute to. Direct, you know, it does come out of taxation, so you sort of do in a sense. Um, but this one, you directly contribute to it. Um, you pay money, the employer pays money, the government pays money. Don't worry too much about how much it is. If you want to be sad and learn all that, great. But um, the point is it's contributory. And if you're out of work, part one, if you're out of work because you're ill or you, uh, you've had an accident or something like that, um, and I don't mean a sort of, you know, five-year-old's accident. I mean like a sort of proper physical injured cut your arm off accident um, and you couldn't work you would be given money for 13 weeks so that was good not a massive amount of money but enough to live on maybe 
part two, same sort of thing, but um, this is for people that couldn't find work, um, and you got way less money for that. Again, it's contributory, but you just didn't get as much money, and the reason was because the government didn't want to make people lazy. But it wasn't in every job either. Not every type of work um, qualified for it. Um, it was more sort of seasonal work and that sort of thing. They just didn't want people to become lazy. So they gave you a little bit of money, but not loads. Um, yeah, so that's that. Any questions? No, good, right, I'll carry on. Um, not really enough, I should just say. It's not really enough to support a working man and his family. But the idea is that it's better than nothing. And that's the same with the pensions, you know. Remember, it's not a lot of money, but it's better than nothing and there's that cartoon with the old man and the dog and he says uh, us ain't all blessed with biggins I think he's talking about his pension but I yeah we'll leave it there I th I'm sure he is right um, okay if we look at reactions to the reforms and sort of what they did um, and how successful they were well um, there's no doubt that the reforms do a lot for children and um, children's health does improve you know it doesn't improve for everyone clearly there is still poverty for some people um, but free school meals is still something that's running today, you know, it's got a big impact. And obviously the free medical checks as well, that does a lot. I mean, the medical check is not a lot, but it's the medical care you get afterwards. And that's a bit of a pre-runner for the NHS in some ways. But remember, adults don't get anything still at this point. Um, the pensions, wow, what a what a great thing. Okay, in the first year, 650,000 old people collected their pensions. Um, and the number of people claiming the sort of you know the handouts and stuff fell by eighty thousand. So clearly it's it's a big shift there. Um, and it, it, what's really good about the pe the pensions is it establishes this new principle that you don't have to pay into something to get something out of it. It's like entitlement because you've been a good citizen and this sort of thing. You've lived in the country. You've contributed in different ways. It doesn't have to be that you're paying into this massive pot thing and to get money out. It's um it was it was it was it was good. Okay. So, um, yeah, obviously the labour exchanges, by 1913, labour exchanges were putting 3,000 people into jobs every working day. Wow, that's good, that's a lot of job finding. Um, but even then, remember, a lot of these jobs are sort of short-term jobs, they're not, you know, they're, they're not really careers, are they? Um, short-term and often low-paid, but again, it's something. Uh, national insurance, well, again, it, you know, it's the same old story, isn't it? It's not amazing. It's not the sort of thing that we'd perhaps be um, content with today, but it's a start. So all in all, you've got this whole sort of um, it's a start business going on, as I just said, where, you know, it's like the safety net thing that we spoke about, I think we did, um, where I said that there were still holes in the safety net, but there is a safety net, whereas before there was just like some guy in a tambourine trying to catch you. It's... Um, not really, not really very good. Whereas, whereas by this point, it's a lot better. It's still not the big safety net we have now. You know, we have a full-on sort of, you know, circus-sized welfare state sort of safety net thing. You know, you fall off and you bounce straight back up again. Um, bit of an exaggeration, but um, it's not. It's not quite like that by the time the Liberals have finished. But it is definitely better than it was. Um, there is a few problems for the Liberals. You know, the House of Lords tried their best to. Uh, to, to block some of these reforms as best as they could, and um, yeah, there was a few clashes there with the with the Liberals, um, and it, it all culminated in a lot of handbags. And in the end, the House of Lords ended up having their powers reduced because the Liberals had this massive majority; they could basically do what they want. Um, 
And, oh, don't, yeah, don't forget that, 1906, big, big year, big landslide victory for the Liberals. This is why they can do all this stuff. A lot of governments couldn't do this because of the opposition they'd face. The Liberals, well, they've got loads and loads of seats in the, in the House of Commons, massive majority. They can basically do what they want. They can make them all wear exploding trousers if they wanted. Um, but they didn't because that's not so helpful. Um, okay, that's it. Well, that's sort of liberal reforms done for now. Um, what we'll do is we'll move on and we'll have a little look-see at the suffrage movement. And again, we'll, we'll just sort of outline what, um, what I suppose the main sort of categories are, you know, the main topics are that you need to know when you're dealing with the suffrage movement so you can make sure you've got all these revised. Um, maybe we need to go for a quick advert break. Yeah, we haven't had an advert yet, have we? Okay. Buy coffee. It keeps you awake. Hello, welcome back to Radio Ronit. Um, suffrage. Okay, here we go. Let's start with, uh, as I say, laying it out. So we've got to, you've got to know, firstly, the reasons why women wanted the vote. You know, why on earth did they kick up such a palaver? And then you've also got to know, well, why did they not get it very easily? What were the attitudes that sort of said, no women, stop, you're not allowed it. So you've got to know the, the, the arguments for and against. Not only that, but you've also got to, uh, you've got to know the suffragists, the suffragists and the suffragettes, and the differences between them, you know, the different methods they used. You've got to know something about the pros and cons of those methods, and you've got to know the main players in the suffragists and the suffragettes, who they were, okay? Um, you've got to know, obviously, the key events, the conciliation bill, the cat and mouse act, you know, Emily Davison and her um, one-way ticket to the Epsom at Derby. She didn't go home. Uh, and... Uh, that sort of thing, you know, and then you've got to know obviously about the impact of the war and how ultimately in 1918 they were given the vote. Okay, so let's go back to the beginning. Right, here we go. So, why on earth did women want the vote? Well, uh, women could actually vote in local elections at this time, and one of the things they said was, well, hang on, we can vote in local elections. We've demonstrated we're okay, so um, we ought to be able to vote in national elections. They pay taxes, so women were sort of the opinion, well, if we pay taxes, we contribute to the country, we should be able to decide where those taxes go. Um, obviously, um, there were lots of working class men that voted. You know, Most men could vote by um, this time, and some of the uh, well, snootier women were of the opinion that, well, if, you know, working class men, well, if they could vote, then well, we should be able to vote. Well, uh, you know, we might not be men, but we're certainly posh. That sort of stuff. So, um, yeah, there's a bit of snobbery in there as well from some women, but not all, not many. That's just a small section. Um, there, you know, the women were getting more opportunities this time in education and uh, in terms of the workplace. And so it's all, it all seemed to sort of fit in. Not only that, but Britain liked to think of itself as a fairly progressive country in a lot of ways, and, uh, you know, democracy and all that sort of business, and, and it just didn't go very hand, didn't sort of go hand in hand with that. Um, a lot of women sort of held responsibilities for their household if they'd been widowed or something like that, and they felt they should be able to have you know, be able to decide the the future of the country as well in, in, through elections. So um, there's some really good reasons. At the same time, there were lots of other arguments for uh, women, or arguments against women having the vote, and uh, it wasn't all from men either. No, 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 no. It wasn't quite so simple as that. In fact, there were famous, famous women. One of which was called Vicky. She was called Queen Vicky, and she um, she didn't want women having the vote at all. 
So, uh, some of the arguments people like her put forward was the fact that women were, you know, emotional, they were not logical, all this sort of stuff. Um, and that they wouldn't be able to make reasoned decisions. Um, they said that um, women didn't fight in wars, therefore they shouldn't be able to have a say on whether the, you know, the government takes, you know, they shouldn't have a say in the government and whether the government takes us into war, that sort of stuff. Um, they felt, some people felt that women just shouldn't worry about it, it wasn't their sphere, men have different spheres, and that the, um, they should be busy, you know, doing, you know the drill, the whole babies sink, all that stuff, and I, I'm not saying that's the right thing, but that's certainly the attitude that they had. Um, also, there was this um, <clears throat> idea that the political world was sort of, well, um, grubby and dirty, and women were too pure and angelic, and shouldn't be grubbied by this horrible, horrible political stuff. And, um, well, that's sort of patronising, isn't it? But I, I guess perhaps that at least had good intentions. So, uh, there were both reasons for and reasons against women having the vote. It was a sort of scales-type scenario, if you can imagine. Uh, okay. Um, I mean... Don't imagine this was something that just suddenly sprang up under the Liberals. It had been rumbling on for a few years, but of course, um, the Liberals having this massive landslide, you know, the political excitement that accompanied that, it was sort of, you know, the, the the push for women's votes suddenly suddenly picked up steam that, it, you know, it had been building but hadn't quite got by this point. So, um, I don't want you to think this is something isolated that suddenly happened. This was the culmination of many years' work by some women, but at the same time, it did pick up a head of steam at this point and got a lot, uh, a lot more vigorous. The, the campaign, both the suffragists and the suffragettes. In fact, the suffragettes were a fairly new thing at this time. So, okay, suffragists and suffragettes. Who were they? Who were they? Who were they? Okay, let's start with the suffragists. Okay, led by the uh, most famous strangely named person I've ever heard of, Millicent Fawcett. Now, this is an interesting one for me, because Millicent sounds a lot like militant, and militant, as you'll know, means sort of extreme and aggressive and sort of out there, you know, in your face. Um, Millicent, well, she was not in your face, and she was not extreme. She was quite a chilled out sort of character, you know, she, um, she compared to the Pankhurst, well, she was a sweetie, didn't really look it, but anyway. Um, she wasn't militant at all, so do remember that, Millicent was not militant. Um, she started the NUWSS, the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies, or as I like to call them, the, the New Wuss. If you look how it's written, it's NUWSS, the New Wuss. That's how I like to remember it. Okay. Um, and they were basically, um, well, they were all suffragists. And they, they, they gathered together many different groups of people that had also been campaigning for the vote and joined them, as under the, joined them under this big umbrella organisation. They had 500 local branches around the country. They organised rallies and marches and uh, propaganda and all that sort of business. Um, and they held meetings and they wrote to MPs and they went to visit MPs and uh, all that sort of you know high-profile stuff. So they were just try gradually trying to chip away and put pressure on people and build support. And they were playing a bit more of a long-term sort of game, you know. Um, but she was what you could call a moderate. She wasn't militant. No, no, no. Millicent was not militant. She was moderate. So she should have been called moderate Fawcett. Um, she, she, um, well, yeah. Uh, I'm just going to read out what it says in the book here. It says, the movement she felt was like a glacier. It was huge and unstoppable. So one day she felt they would get there. They'd start this big thing and, and it would just become too difficult for people to say no. They would, one day women would have the vote through sheer struggle and the weight of letters going to the Prime Minister. 
Uh, the suffragettes, on the other hand, well, no, 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 they were a little bit more extreme than that. They were a little, they were militant. Okay, um, these were people that didn't want to wait. They didn't want to faff around and wait years and years and years. They wanted to do it. They wanted to strike while the iron was hot, and the iron was hot. Okay. Um, Emmeline Pankhurst, most famous, and she had several daughters, including Sylvia and Christabel. Um, and the Pankhurst, well, they basically, were the were, as I say, were the most famous of these suffragette women. In 1903, they formed the Women's Social and Political Union, or the WSPU. It's a bit like, well, I don't know, being wussy is poo, I guess. <laughs> Oops, juvenile me. Um... Yeah, so they were they were much more hardcore. They were um, hardcore. You know what they're for. They were um, they were they were burning um, letter boxes. You know, setting fire to letters and letter boxes. Probably meant that some of the suffragette stuff didn't get through. Uh, and they they even did things like you know burning churches and attacking people. And one of them spat in the face of a policeman, um, which is never good. Um, certainly not back then either. So really high profile stuff. And of course you'll know that Emily Davison had a uh, coming together with the King's Horse at the Epsom Derby in 1913 and she came off second best. So really ho high profile events and it was all about putting themselves out there. You know, the, the, the suffragists were much more about being calm and collected and not alienating people, you know, trying to build a consensus, build an agreement over time that women should have the vote. Well, the suffragettes were more about sort of, you know, just annoying people until they gave them the vote and, and, and getting publicity and making it impossible for them to be ignored. Um, which one worked? Well, whew, that is a discussion and we'll come to that later. Those are the essential differences. You probably ought to have a, a pretty good understanding of the difference between the two groups because if suffragettes does come up then maybe that's the sort of thing they might look at. But equally they might look at war, I think. I don't know. Who knows? Uh, there's a lot of stuff for them to look at. Yeah. Um, so were they effective then, these suffragettes? Well, they've got to remember the thing about the suffragettes was although they got publicity, they uh, they also annoyed a lot of people. Yep, turned a lot of people off. Um, there was a lot of men commented that they were well up for women having the vote before all this suffragette nonsense, and then the suffragettes came along and ruined it all, and now they don't want to give them the vote, so there. Um, well, it's easy for the men to say that, though, isn't it? How much the suffragettes really put them off, well, I don't know. It's very easy for people to hide behind that and say that, isn't it? Um, let's face the facts, you know, the suffragettes were behaving pretty well up until um, 1911 when Asquith dropped the conciliation bill, and that's when they went a bit berserk. So the idea that women were... Um, you know, men were sort of coming around to it, and women in the suffragettes spoiled spoil it. I think that's a bit simplistic. Um, either way, you know, the publicity that they got was important, and I think it's difficult to separate exactly who did it. You know, who got them the vote. It's probably the work of of, of both groups in different ways. Um, but there's no doubt, is there, that, that, that World War One was obviously important. Okay, if we um, leave behind this whole. Um, sort of, you know, difference in, in terms of their actions and all that sort of business. Um, what we'll do, we'll look at some of the key events. Just want to remind you about the Conciliation Bill in 19 1911. It was a bill, it never became an act, because, well, it was dropped, wasn't it? It got through Parliament and had a majority, um, but just as it looked like it would become a law and women would have the vote, um, well, Asquith, the man with the most amusing name, he um, he dropped the bill. And he decided instead what he was going to do is he's going to extend the vote to all men. And oops, I accidentally forgot to include women in that. So, Mr. Asquith was, as you can imagine, not too popular and um, probably had several bricks thrown through his windows. And the suffragettes went a bit berserk, really. Yeah, there was lots of, you know, furious firings and, uh, you know, like 
setting fire to stuff and all manner of things you know more policemen got spat at and uh, more churches got burnt down and warehouses they did crazy things like sabotaging golf courses you know hit the men where it hurts um and then uh as a result of that the government had to well they decided they had to take some firm action so um they arrested these women and they went, women went to prison or certainly were arrested and uh, in in cells they'd be force-fed because they'd gone on hunger strike and there are horrible images of women with pipes up their nose and all this sort of stuff and uh, having well i don't know food slop poured down it trying to uh, trying to get some nutrition into them so it was pretty um pretty brutal um it did a lot of damage to the government that whole that whole sort of force feeding business so then the government thinks well okay well how do we get around this and that's when the meow the cat and mouse act came in um because what that allowed the government to do is that allowed them to arrest these women and uh, keep them for a bit and when they looked like they were starving they would let them go let them go home to recover and then they'd rearrest them and basically just irritate them it's a little bit petty isn't it but um the government thought that was a solution but equally on the other hand that also annoys people and it makes the government look a bit pathetic and um I'm I'm not sure just how it how successful the Cat and Mouse Act was. Again, it gave the suffragettes some really good propaganda ammo to hurl at them. But what you got to remember is, in amongst all this, the suffragists, well, they were also going berserk as well. You know, they were like, oh, they had so many meetings. Oh, and they had meetings about meetings, and they had a meeting to decide if they needed a meeting. And uh, at the end of that meeting, they might write a letter or maybe go on a pilgrimage, which is a, a sort of a march. Uh, and they did one of these peaceful marches from Carlisle to London. They were that annoyed. Yes, they were going to stop earlier than that. But no, they went all the way to, to London because uh, they were that angry. And they nearly kept going as well. Yeah, very, very angry. Um, so, that's the suffragists and the suffragettes. Um, and the main events... I suppose one other big event I ought to mention is uh, Emily Davison at the Derby. Now, did she mean to kill herself, didn't she? Well, I don't know if it really matters that much for your exam. You've just got to be aware that there's a bit of a debate there. Um, the, uh, it's just a really good example, isn't it, of, of suffragette activity. So, as I said before, you need some examples up your sleeve, a little bit of magic, if you will, um, so that you're ready to um, to tell Mr. Examiner of, of uh, examples of suffragette activity. And also, if you're a suffragist, would be good. And I know we made notes on those as well. Um, okay, so if we look at the period sort of 1906-1913 it's not really looking terribly good for women in 1913 because Emily Davis has just been run over, you've got the Cat and Mouse Act and all that sort of business going on, you know suffragettes beating in policemen's faces and setting fire to things um, sort of 1913, it's not looking like they're going to get the vote to be honest so the big issue is then, how does that turn around, well what is it that happens between 1913 and 1918 that suddenly helps women to get the vote, well duh, you've guessed it World War One. So, um, World War One happens in 1914. Finishes in 1918. You will remember this, I hope. And um, well, women do loads of really important things. They, um, you know, women's land army. They work in uh, on the land and help to produce food and what have you. Uh, a lot of them do really sort of clerical jobs and um, work as secretaries, that sort of thing. Um, you know, the civil service helping to support the work of government. Um, but one of the most, obviously, the most famous thing they do is go and work in the munitions factories, and some of them come out uh, with sort of yellow hair, and they get nicknamed canaries. Some of them actually um, die as a result of, of, of working in these factories. It's pretty, pretty, pretty rough, actually. Um, in fact, by the end of the war, almost 800,000 women had taken up working in the engineering industry. So you're talking a large, large number of women here doing this. 
um, and they did all sorts of all sorts of different things in these in these factories. And as I say, it was it was pretty grim. And without the efforts of these women, they wouldn't have had enough munitions. Remember, in 1915, there's a munitions crisis. They wouldn't have had enough weapons and munitions, and they might well have lost the war because you can't win a war without bullets. And well, unless you're like a Roman, because they didn't have guns then. Um, so obviously important now how important well that's the thing how important was it you know did women suddenly get the vote you know did 1918 happen the war ended and the government went i know what we'll do these women have been really good we'll give them the vote and everyone went yeah give them the vote was it like that well no not really um the main thing that impressed people i think was the fact that the suffragists and the suffragettes buried the hatchet and they knuckled down and, and, and got on with it and showed their commitment to the country i think that was really important um, so the, obviously the work they did was important, but it was the symbolism of burying the hatchet and and, um, and and obviously not campaigning during the war that that was important. But the most important thing I think was is and it's a bit sad actually for the Liberals. It's not terribly good on them, but um, they decided in 1917 they were going to change the vote anyway, and they were going to change it for men. Lots of men had been away fighting, uh, obviously in Belgium and France, etc., and they'd lost their right to vote because if you're out of the country for a certain amount of time back then, you lost your vote, and. Um, they sort of thought, well, seeing as we're changing the vote for men, well, we may as well change it for women as well. And so, yeah, cheers, cheers for that, Liberals. Um, great, you know, great effort. So what happened was um, women over the age of 30 and women over the age of 21 uh, were given the vote. Uh, sorry, over, women over the age of 30 and women over the age of 21 who were householders or married to householders gained the vote. So if you're a single woman, you have to be over 30. If you're married to a householder, blah, 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 21. Yeah, it's not a bit of a bizarre way of doing it. But nine women in total were given the vote. Okay, so um, it was it was good. The, the downside is, of course, a lot of the women that are working in these factories, a lot of the women that do all this work, well, they don't get the vote. They don't qualify because a lot of them are certainly under the age of 30. Um, and certainly a lot of them weren't householders so um, it was it was a yeah, okay again like I said with the liberal reforms you know it's something but it's not amazing you know it's a step forward step in the right direction but there were lots of women left unhappy about it all um, yeah uh, and women could also stand for parliament in 1919 Nancy Astor became the first woman MP to take her seat in commons in the commons so um, yeah there we are Oh yeah, and I should mention that full women's voting rights were not granted until 1928. They had another 10 years to wait. Um, but you know, for people like Millicent and the Pankhursts and all that business, it was um, job well done. Ultimately, in the end. Okay, so what got them the vote? Well, it's this whole combination thing again, isn't it? Don't don't forget about that. It's not just one thing. It's this whole combination of factors. There's no doubt that World War One probably quickened the process. They might have got there eventually anyway. Um, but World War One certainly quickens the process and um, helps to mend, I think, some of the, the the bridges that have been burnt sort of in 1913. Okay. Right. Um, now, we've done the liberal reforms. We've done the suffragettes. It only leaves us now to have a quick whiz through the home front. And I'm going to start off by talking about my favourite old lady, Dora. Yes, Dora. Um, she's not really an old lady, is she? She stands for Defence of the Realm Act. And um, that was the law that the Liberal government brought in in 1914 that basically allowed them to do whatever the heck they wanted to make Britain fit for war. So um, we'll start having a little look at Dora. Let me just find the right 
part in my notes. Here we go. Okay, so um, Dora um, gives them control. Oh, sorry, I've all rushed in, haven't I? Let's listen to me getting straight into this home front. Okay. Um, main issues in home front. We need to be clear on the main issues, don't we? You need to understand Dora, obviously, as I'm about to do that. Um, you need to know about the main challenges that they faced on the home front. So, like things like the food crisis, the munitions crisis, that sort of business. Um, and you need to understand the importance of propaganda and presenting, you know, the, the government presenting the right image and censorship and all that sort of business. Those are important issues. You've also got to know about recruitment and conscription, um, how they got people to go and, you know, well, throw their lives away um, by getting shot at. And um, as I've already mentioned, the role of women. You need to understand the role of women in uh, World War One as well. And we've sort of touched on that already. So... Let's go back now. We'll go back to our friend Dora and see how she's getting on. Uh, Defence of the Realm Act was passed on the 8th of August 1914 and it gives the government power basically to take control of the country. Total war. The idea that everything in the country can be put towards this war. Um, and the government could, um, under Dora, they could take control of you know areas, blocks of land and that sort of stuff. So if there was a sort of a village playing field they wanted to make you know, I don't know, runner beans and carrots to feed people, they could do that um, it, it, likewise an in industry if they wanted to take over someone's um, I don't know pencil sharpener business they could do that and they could turn them into lethal swords and use them, or bayonets and use them out on the, uh, in, the in the trenches Okay, so um, they could basically take over industry and, and do what they wanted with it um, so in terms of industry then 1915 there was this huge big issue for the government called the munitions crisis and a crisis is a bad thing and munitions is to do with ammunition so you can probably work out that this was a bad thing to do with ammunition they were running out so the government decided that what they would do is they would use Dora to help them take control of industry and they negotiated with trade unions to get better pay and conditions all this sort of business they brought women into the workforce they um, helped to make sure that key workers didn't get shipped off to war and that they were used in the mines and uh, in the factories if they were needed there um, to make sure that the Britain was as productive as possible so ultimately the, the munitions crisis eased and they had enough ammunition to go on and well eventually win the war as you know because you're not speaking German to me in fact, you're not speaking to me, I'm speaking to you. Yeah, that's a bit of German for you. So, uh, yeah, that was that was the, uh, the industry. If we move on to food and controlling food, well, again, there was another crisis, and food crisis, again, crisis is a bad thing, food is something you eat, there was a crisis with things you eat. There wasn't enough, and food was running short. In fact, by 1917, uh, there was only six weeks of wheat left, and um, wheat's obviously very important for making lots of things, including bread. Uh, the reason being, by April 1917, there was this huge load of U-boat attacks on British supplies. Because remember, Britain was doing a lot of supply, um, a lot of trading with America across the Atlantic, and a lot of ships were being sunk, and um, that means a lot of food was finding its way to the bottom of the ocean and not onto people's plates. And uh, as a result of that, the government needed to act. So what they did is they brought in rationing, 1917, voluntary rationing. That's a great idea, isn't it? Hey, people, put your hand up. Who wants to eat less food? Okay, uh, well, I suppose it will work on, like, you know, like, um, I don't know, like Fat Club or something, but um, not, you know, not, not perhaps so, so useful for most people. So, voluntary rationing was brought in, and um, the government also put 
uh, gave over another two and a half million acres of land into agricultural production. So on the one hand, they're trying to stop people eating as much. On the other hand, they're trying to increase the amount of food because food prices have gone up as well. So they're trying to combat that. Um, ordinary people were co encouraged to start up allotments. It's a good job I didn't live then because I cannot do stuff like that. I, in fact, I just did my garden at the weekend. You might be interested to know. Yep. Um, but I didn't grow any vegetables because that's too much like hard work when I can go down to Marks and Spencers and they've already chopped them for me. Um, yeah, so the voluntary rationing thing came in, and well, the Queen and you know the royal, uh, the King, sorry at the time, and the royal fa the royal family, they supported it, and they um, they voluntary rationed, and uh, and they tried to encourage other people to do to do the same. But unfortunately, it didn't work as well as the government had hoped. It did a bit, but not enough really. So by January 1918, the government had to introduce compulsory rationing, and this was the whole: you haven't got a choice. Okay, it's not voluntary, it's going to happen. And so you've got a weekly ration of meat, butter, margarine, cheese, sugar, all those sorts of things um, to make sure that, uh, you know, that you weren't eating Britain into defeat. Because, let's face it, if you can't food your population, you're going to have to stop fighting. You're going to have to surrender. Not a good thing. So, we've spoken about controlling industry and controlling food. Um, yeah, controlling information, that was a big one, really. Um, massive, massive, massive. Propaganda and censorship, you know about all the posters, you know, the recruitment, sign up, fight for your country, da da da, such and such needs you, all that business, okay? So, lots of propaganda right from the outbreak of war. It'll be over by Christmas, yay! Oops. Um, but the government was very into that, you know, trying to keep people's morale up, trying to convince them that German people were evil, spreading stories that the Germans used to bayonet Belgian babies on spikes and things. It was all done to try and make the British people, you know, want to believe in the war, because if they didn't believe in the war, they wouldn't want to fight, and then that would give them problems. So um, it was all about making people want to do the war and want to win. And uh, that's sort of easy at the start of the war, isn't it? Because there's this whole it'll be over by Christmas sort of thing going on and everyone's enthusiastic and yes, let's go and beat the Bosch and, you know, hassle the Hun and, I don't know, do something else to German people. And then, um, as it all unfolds, it turns out that actually, um, you know, your pointy stick on the end of your gun and uh, your big baton aren't really going to help you get past the German machine guns and um, it turns into a bit of a bloodbath and it goes on for several years and nothing really moves and um, Blackadder says doesn't he about it being an asthmatic ant which is quite good uh, and, and as a result of that it becomes much harder to convince people to believe in the war so the government has to up their game in terms of propaganda so you get things like the Battle of the Somme film which okay they're meant to show you what life's really like and it does to an extent there is real footage of people being shot and well or not people being shot there's dead bodies and there's there's wounded people on there and stuff like that but at the same time uh, it's not quite real it's not quite gritty enough it doesn't quite give you the, the, the proper feel of what it was like so um Things like the Battle of the Somme is a really important one. Remember, people watched that film and they were shocked by what they saw anyway. But at the same time, there was a bit of a positive spin on it. And um, a lot of people left the cinemas. You know, some people left the cinemas really upset. Some people left the cinemas sort of feeling, well, hey, you know, we're, we're giving out some punishment here. Excuse me, I'm going to cough. <coughs> I have now coughed. Um, right. Um, in terms of censorship... Um, Obviously, they were very keen to make sure that the soldiers didn't write home, you know, dearest Mildred, tomorrow we're launching a really big attack at the Battle of, you know, at the Somme. 
we're going to be doing X, Y, Z, blah, 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 and walking across no man's land. You know, they didn't want them saying things like that. So everything was censored, and there was only certain things they could send home. And part of that was because they didn't want it falling into German hands, and part of it was as well, they wanted to keep the horror of the war away from people at home. Um, they wanted people at home to have an idea, but perhaps not to quite fully appreciate the, the, the realities of it. So, um, one example of... Um, Censorship is, I'm just reading the book here, 1917, the censors told one Manchester engineering firm to scrap an advertisement for this, you know, for the reason they didn't want to give any information to the enemy. So uh, they were advertising spark plugs, exclamation mark. There we are. Ho, ho, ho. So censorship, propaganda, really important. How effective was the government propaganda in keeping people into the war, you know, keeping their spirits up? Well, it's difficult to judge. Most people you know stuck it out most people were still behind the war effort but was that because of propaganda or was that because they were just sort of you know um like you, you they've gone so far into it and they've done so much they just didn't want to lose at that point you know they didn't want to back down then almost like you know you've run 20 miles of a marathon you may as well do the other six or whatever it is yeah so um quite how effective the, the government propaganda was I'm, it's difficult to say um although it's worth saying that most opinion polls remain remained you know in favor of the war in favor of, of britain's participation and all that sort of stuff so government, government obviously did quite well it certainly didn't help it didn't hurt did it their propaganda that's the way to look at it probably a lot of people just motivated themselves um anyway um sort of put you know always look on the bright side of life that sort of thing just get on with it but the government propaganda probably helped okay biggie then how did they get enough people to go away and uh, get shot at how did they recruit people well um if you remember august uh, 1914 when the war started there were loads of people singing in the streets and parties and all this sort of stuff yeah we're going to war we're going to war it's a long way to tipperary all that stuff um there's a lot of jubilation jubilation i'm doing a lot of singing for you there's a lot of jubilation and by sort of October, November that time that year, it started to dip, and certainly by December 1915, it had reached an all-time low. There were not many recruits at all, so the government had to do something about it. Uh, and Kitchener's army, this this volunteer, you know, this supply of people they were hoping would volunteer, it was starting to run a bit low. Remember, Kitchener was the um, the guy on the poster, you know, your country needs you, and he was in charge of recruitment basically. And um, so it's called Kitchener's army because these were recruits, as these were volunteers, they weren't um, permanent soldiers. Now you might have noticed because that was a seamless change. Uh, I I used the pause button, but um, I've just been interrupted by my wife, and uh, she was laughing at me, so I, I've forgotten where I got to. Yeah, that's right, Kitchener's army. Yeah, so Kitchener, they were volunteers, they were recruits. Remember, England's full-time army before the war was only sort of 750,000 men, and a lot of those had carked it by this point, and, um, and Britain desperately needed to, to, to um, get more people to join up. So there's huge propaganda and all this sort of business, and um, trying to encourage people to sign up, and it did work to an extent. Um, and then they introduced this idea of pals battalions, the idea that you could sign up and fight alongside your chums. Well, that's great, you know, fight and train and, oh yeah, die next to them. Um, not really good for morale. And um, one of the things we looked at on the battlefields trip, oops, was um, the Accrington pals who all signed up and um, together. And it's really sad, they, they all, a lot of them died together and the whole town was basically in mourning they all got the news on the same day and um well yeah it's just just a bit horrible so that was one method of, of trying to get people to sign up uh of course not everyone wanted to sign up um so ultimately they brought in conscription in january 1916 they brought in conscription um all men had to register for war 
uh, for war work and then they could be called up at any time um, bit of a controversial move um, obviously it meant that anyone could go but it actually in some ways it was a fair move because a lot of people that have been going to fight were the working class people and some people in Britain felt that you know maybe middle and upper class people hadn't been pulling their pulling their weight so uh, it was fair it was a bit of an equaler a leveler in that sense and um, and not only that but it also meant if the government took control of recruitment then they, had, they could be guaranteed they had enough people they could obviously plan properly for the bat for, for battles and they uh, they could target specific people that they wanted to stay at home. So, um, for instance, I, I've been researching my family history recently, and I can tell you that um, I know certainly one of my uh, one of my relatives on my dad's side. Um, he he didn't get sent to World War One because he was uh, working. Uh, I think he was working in the mines, and so um, they needed him to stay in the mines. And so they said, no, your work war work is going to be working in the mines, not working, um, not going to fight. So sort of lucky for him in a sense. Um, but that was because the government could take control of it, and if they needed people to work in the mines, because they couldn't really get women to do that in that time, um, they could they could keep men back from the front line, people that were trained miners. Of course, not everyone still wanted to join up, and some people, um, conchies, conscientious objectors, they decided that they wouldn't want to, and well, very controversial again. They were you know be given the white feather and all that business. Um, there weren't many of them. There weren't many conchies, to be honest with you, um, but. Um, it was the, the government actually made quite a big play of it again for propaganda reasons to make sure that they didn't become a big thing so they were really down on conchies and that some of them had trials and things like that you could actually um, be sent to break rocks you know hard labor and stuff like that if you didn't go to fight and you were called up so conchies were treated pretty badly um, some people actually went to fight and um, didn't like what they saw so you might have heard of Siegfried, Siegfried Sassoon and um, he wrote lots of poetry and things condemning the war and he was carted off to a mental asylum and things like that so um, yeah government pretty pretty harsh actually in dealing with people that didn't like war at that time it wasn't a good time to be a pacifist um, and then you've got women at war and we've sort of already spoken about that so that's that bit done um, let me just have a quick scan and see if there's anything else that I need to mention to you um, I don't th think so. Let me just have a look. We've done the whole Dora thing and the censorship and all that. Remember, they're only allowed to report good news. That's part of the censorship. Newspapers and things were were monitored and were checked, and they were only allowed to report good news. Uh, and then we've spoken about the films already. Did people really support the war? Well, I've mentioned Siegfried, Siegfried Sassoon and people like that that didn't. There were lots of socialists, lots of members of the Labour Party indeed that didn't support the war. In fact, Ramsay MacDonald, I don't think, supported the war. Um, but at the same time, most most people did. Um, it, it was, I suppose, just accepted by some people. Uh, by, by, certainly by most people. Uh, Okay, um, so I suppose people stuck with it, but weren't perhaps as enthusiastic about it in a sense. So when the end of the war came in November 1918, it was more sort of relief than than you know, woohoo! It was it was it was for a lot of people. It was just a big sigh of relief that finally, after four years of bloodshed, it was over. Um, so the government hadn't completely convinced everyone that they were having a great time. Um, propaganda wasn't that successful. It was enough to make sure that people continued to support the war, even if they didn't enjoy it. As, as you know, silly as it sounds, they they certainly supported it. Okay, well, um, it's been fun taking you through um, those three topics. What I want to do really quickly, just for this last few minutes, is um, talk you through some general exam tips.
you need to remember of course that paper 2 is all about sources when the examiner asks you to look at a source make sure that you refer to the source the examiner is asking you about it would be rude not to also um, there are certain types of questions aren't there the first question tends to be a what is the message of this source question so again 3c stuff you know context content and you know, content context and comment um, make sure that you you know you refer to details in the cartoon make sure you use your background knowledge um, and you bring that into anything you're talking about um, with any source you're talking about you've got to bring in your background knowledge you've got to talk about you've got to show off that you understand where this source comes from you've got to show off that you understand what it's referring to so you've got to show off your background knowledge you've got to show off the content in any source you're talking about and obviously um, with a what is the message cartoon you need to clearly say what the message is a lot of exam questions ask you there's about four of them on the paper that just ask you to look at one source and it might be why was this source made in a certain year so think about purpose and in a lot of questions understanding the purpose is the key to it you know if you can you trust this source well why was it made what's the purpose behind it how useful is it well what's it trying to do what's the purpose behind it so all the time think about the three C's think about your background knowledge think about the purpose of a source and then um, remember the last, the, sorry, the penultimate question often asks you to compare two sources and talk about whether they agree on something or whether the authors would, of those sources would agree on something or whatever um, and just get you to compare them. So again, you've got to, all the same stuff, you've got to refer to the sources um, and think about where they're coming from. And then the final question, of course, is the biggie, it's the 12 mark question and it's the one where they give you a statement, uh, Mr. Ollett is the most amazing podcaster ever, do the sources support this, that sort of thing. And you have to say, well, yes or, or no. But again, it's about using the sources. And remember, um, you don't have to go into it. lots of detail, but there's a few marks available there for source evaluation. Often not, you know, you don't want to do loads, maybe just a, 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 you know, a bit. But um, a good historian, of course, considers the evidence and where it's come from. Um, and you need to make sure you do the whole scales thing. So just do a quick table in there and, and add on, um, you know, which sources support which side. Just a really quick one and cross it out after you've done it. I mean, the paper is yours, you know, effectively we've paid for that as a school on your behalf or someone's paid for it somewhere. So just, you know, d write on it you know make notes on it I don't want you to have to prat around on it because I might want to use it for someone's mock but um, it's your chance you only get one chance at this so um, write on it and uh, make notes underline things highlight things annotate it do whatever you need to do to get all the information out so I think that's it um, I can't think if there's anything else are there any other questions no okay so what I will do then is I will sign off now and I will leave you to come and track me down if you need to find me bearing in mind I'm away most of this week on work experience placements um, well, well, not, I'm not on placement I believe it or not I have a job I'm actually going to observe pupils on placement and make sure that they're all okay and not ruining businesses across Hampshire so if you need me then um, well you'll know where to find me like the A-team I guess um, if you have a problem and no one else can solve it, maybe you can hire the R-Team. That's it for now. It's been a pleasure. And um, I'll see you all again soon. Best of luck with your paper too. This is Mr. Rollick signing out. Have a nice evening, afternoon, morning, whenever you're listening to this. Hopefully someone will. Okay. Goodbye.
Radio Rollit.